are back at Politicon in Nashville, Tennessee, and we are still live. Welcome back to Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and a current Washington Post columnist. Today, we're back at Politicon for the second part of a discussion around one question. Is the dam finally breaking? <clears throat> These are days that are going to be in the history books, one way or another. We'll be talking about comparing and contrasting these days for our lives and, and the, the lives of our grandchildren. Our panel yesterday focused on the political and strategic considerations in Congress and, White House, and the White House around the impeachment effort. Today we turn to two other aspects of the accelerating snowball downhill that is the Trump impeachment. Um, and to discuss, we have a fantastic panel with two brilliant commentators, seriously, and both first-time visitors to Talking Feds and one charter member well-known, I think, to everyone here. Talking Feds uh, regular Barb McQuaid. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Harry. Yeah. Barb, as you know, is the former United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. She served as Vice Chair of the Attorney General's Advisory Committee, co-chaired the Terrorism and National Security Subcommittee, and is currently a professor from practice at the University of Michigan Law School. Next, author and political commentator David Frum joins us for the first time. A former speechwriter for President George W. Bush, he is, to my mind, as thoughtful and as moral a voice within the Republican Party that exists today, and his strong identification with the party coexists with exceptionally trenchant criticism of what ails it and where it needs to go. David's the author of many books, Trumpocracy, the Corruption of the American Republic, to name a, a prominent one. He writes for The Atlantic. Oh, and he coined the phrase, Axis of Evil. David, welcome. Thank you. And finally, Malcolm Nance. Malcolm is a former... <laughs> one, two, three. I think you've won the dance contest. A former United States Navy officer involved in numerous counterterrorism, intelligence, and combat operations. He's done the real deal. And since leaving the service, he's become a premier intelligence, national security, and foreign policy analyst especially on various terror groups. He wrote, by the way, a fantastic book on ISIS a few years ago that you may want to get back off your bookshelves after today's news. And his latest book, The Plot to, Bet to Betray America, a richly detailed argument of the Russian campaign to secure influence over our president, Donald Trump, just came out this month. Oh, and he speaks Arabic. Um, <laughs> Malcolm, thank you very much for coming. I'd actually like to start with you because we're here sure. having just received the breaking news of the um, killing of the prominent terrorist Abu Bakir al-Baghdadi. 
And I think probably no one in Nashville or Tennessee or maybe the United States knows more about him and that event. Could you just give us a sort of three to five minute, however you want, but give us the basic skinny on how important this is and who this guy was. Well, uh, thank you for the, the, the introduction. Uh, the first thing I'd like to do is we really owe our men and women of the armed forces a debt of gratitude for carrying out an exceptionally dangerous mission. I mean, the, the people who carried this out are, are literally the tip of the spear in every aspect of special operations and intelligence. Uh, and we do have to give props to the president for having the uh, wherewithal to sign a national finding that would direct them to go and kill Abu Bakr Baghdadi, a man who deserved to die. I mean, some people in this world need to be destroyed. As the leader of ISIS, he was at the top of the list. However, let's put this into context. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was a very junior level player in the early 2000s in Al-Qaeda in Iraq. He was an Iraqi and he didn't become extremely radicalized until he was captured by U.S. forces and sent to a U.S. prison camp in southern Iraq, Camp Bukha, which at the time when I was in Iraq, we were calling that the Jihadi Postgraduate School. And we were actually, the people we were collecting were getting lessons learned from each other and becoming more and more radical to where Iraqis who would have been with the Saddam Fedayeen or some other local Iraqi group were now joining al-Qaeda in Iraq and then what would become the Islamic State of Iraq, which Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi became the commander of in 2006. So when you hear those tropes about, uh, what is it, Barack Obama inventing ISIS, well, no, ISIS existed as a rebranding of al-Qaeda in Iraq. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi took over that organization in the low years between 2006 and 2011, and then when the Syrian civil war started, they sent forces to Syria and they were actually supported directly by the government of Syria. So when the civil war started, they just went back to the bases and stole all the weapons that they were getting for free from the Syrian government and became the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. They executed Osama bin Laden's concept of the Islamic State, of a caliphate, which would be a central location where all jihadis could come together. But bin Laden was smarter than that. You have to remember, Osama bin Laden was the man who killed 3,000 American citizens on September 11th, caused the deaths of 7,000 U.S. service members in the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the deaths of hundreds of thousands of civilians in all of the wars that are being carried out through the Middle East and North Africa. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was the Islamic State's figurehead and general operational commander just within their caliphate. So historically, bin Laden is a ginormous figure, you know, akin to Adolf Hitler. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi would be essentially, you know, the governor of Silesia uh, in World War II or, or Erwin Rommel or something like that, a smaller figure. But he de definitely needed to be done away with. And after five years of collecting intelligence, and we've learned recently the Kurds provided a lot of intelligence. We learned that Osama, bin, oh, I'm sorry, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was finally taken down in a special mission by our Tier 1 Special Operations Forces. Thanks, Malcolm. All right. 
Let's push ahead with our overall uh, theme of is the dam breaking finally? You know, it feels as if a, a narrative of profound abuse of power, one that the American people, we learned of one month ago, if this is all developed in, in, in that quickly, is really now basically been established with nearly beyond refutation on the facts. That those are the facts on the ground for, for the White House, for the, the congressional Republicans, the congressional Democrats. In the meantime, the White House is taking its lumps in the courts, most recently Friday, with a decision uh, saying that the Congress has, is entitled because it's, it's carrying on a valid uh, process, potentially leading to impeachment, to see the grand jury materials that Robert Mueller developed, which adds all kinds of possibilities, maybe ones that they don't want to uh, exploit, but possibilities for Congress in, a, in the case they are constitutionally um, prescribed to prosecute. Um, so, other, other bombs are also in position to go off. The most incendiary, I think, being the potential indictment of Trump's personal attorney and the nation's shadow secretary of state, Rudy Giuliani, who we also learned last week is the subject of a counterintelligence investigation and a prolific butt dialer. Um, <laughs> let's start with him because I see him as this sort of, you know, crazy comic book villain lurking in the background, but destined to be the number two figure after only the president in the coming impeachment battle. And I'd like to just talk about a few different aspects. Barb, you wrote or co-wrote a really interesting uh, article this week detailing Giuliani's possible criminal exposure here and now based both on events that are ancillary to the uh, impeachment charges involving Trump and Zelensky and others that are central to it. Is an indictment likely as you see it, speaking as a former prosecutor, and would it be for conduct related to the Ukraine? How, how do you sort of book these uh, possibilities? Yeah, thanks, Harry. Thanks for inviting me to be here for Talking Feds. And uh, I also want to thank uh, the folks at Politicon. I've always wanted to come to Politicon because I'm so delighted to meet the people who are here, engaged citizens who want to learn more about what's going on in our democratic processes. You know, uh, a democracy depends on an engaged electorate. And so it's wonderful that we have this convening. And thank you all. For we being got them here. here, don't we? Yeah. But to answer your question, Harry, yes, Joyce Vance and I are, were friends, former U.S. attorneys, um, and we drafted what a, uh, an indictment might look like against Rudy Giuliani uh, for just security. Um, I believe he could be indicted today for crimes relating to Ukraine, charges of conspiracy to defraud the United States in the administration of fair elections, number one, conspiracy to commit bribery by demanding a thing of value that is uh, dirt on Trump's political rivals in exchange for the performance of an official act, that is, the delivery of military aid to Ukraine, um, and contempt of Congress for disobeying a congressional subpoena. Um, and I believe the unindicted co-conspirator would be someone we called Individual One, President Trump. And so now, what do you think about, uh, you know, things are different from when we were both U.S. attorneys, but we have a real sense of the kind of interplay with main justice, where big cases like this are involved, people are immediately wondering, would such a uh, proposed prosecution 
would the boot be put on the neck of the prosecution by the attorney general, deputy attorney general? Would it go forward uh, and or, or, or would they, in fact, try to, to squash it? You know, I don't know. I think in administrations past, I would be very optimistic that an, uh, an indictment would go forward. I think William Barr has uh, caused me not to give him the benefit of the doubt based on his conduct to date. Although I think there was a little bit of a tell when the Justice Department recently issued a statement that said that they had had a meeting with Rudy Giuliani about some of his clients and then immediately issued a really unusual statement saying that if they had known uh, about some of the other activity relating to Parnas and Fruman, they would not have had that meeting. And so, one, it begs the question, how do they not know uh, what the right hand and the left hand are doing? But even if that's true, it does suggest to me that they recognize that there's something very improper about having a meeting with Giuliani when he may be under investigation. And that, to me, is a little bit of a tell that he is indeed under investigation and that charges might be imminent. Yeah, I took that definitely as a tell that he's a, a real suspect. I mean, there's a real possibility for Giuliani would be my best bet, which is everybody. He's he's not going to be the one clasped to the, the bosom of the White House and defended to the death. I, I think he is basically going to be discarded to the dogs, even by, by DOJ. We will see. David, what would be the sort of political implications for the impeachment battle of a Rudy indictment? Well, first, let me say I, it is it's, it is heartbreaking to watch this happen to Rudy yeah. Giuliani. Um, we were talking and, and Mal- Bill Barr. Yeah. Uh, Malcolm was speaking of what happened, the events of 9/11, and we all remember the heroic role that Rudy Giuliani played on that day. I volunteered on his presidential campaign in 2007 and 2008. Was that uh, largely the reason you had been inspired by seeing him then? And, and I'd also been um, a, a resident of New York in the early 1990s and saw the difference that Rudy Giuliani yeah. made as mayor That's to turning around America's greatest city. Um, so it, it is heartbreaking. And I think it is an example of the kind of the one genius that President Trump has is to identify little moral cracks in people and find where pressure can turn a moral crack into a moral smash. Um, and it is just, it is heartrending to see. Um, from a political point of view, I think the main impact of, uh, of a Giuliani impeachment, it will, uh, sorry, indictment, it will surprise him, it will antagonize him, and it adds to Him the, being Giuliani. Giuliani. And, and as with the firing of John Bolton, it adds the number of um, moving parts of this operation, people who know a lot, who were on the team and who are now have independent interests. Um, and Giuliani will then begin to make a calculation, as John Bolton is making a calculation, how much to say, um, how much to reveal, how much to look out for his own interests separate from those of the White House. I, I am not optimistic that this um, impeachment process ends in a dramatic way. I think it is more likely to end in a fizzle. And I've been v- very cautious about impeachment um, throughout, and I've, I've written about the dangers of it. But this could perhaps shake just enough loose. The goal here is not to think about removal. That's with two-thirds of the Senate required. That's obviously a very far stretch. But um, setting the table for uh, 2020 and persuading a lot of soft Trump voters, look, I know you're not going to cast um, a Democratic ballot um, on issues of process, but you maybe could make 2020 a U year. 
2020, you, know, you all have, maybe you have a business, maybe you have kids in school, uh, maybe you've got that woodworking project you've been meaning to get to. Folk, make 2020 the year for that. Focus on you. <laughs> and then re-enter politics in 2021, because I guarantee you the next president will do things you don't like, and you can get activated then. Yeah. Um, by the way, it's a great point about the moving parts. Remember with Mueller, they, you know, the, the White House successfully circled the wagons. Really, everyone that Congress wanted to hear from, they were able to parry, sometimes by going to court, stalling for time. And of course, some of those decisions are now coming home to roost, except we have the Ukraine situation where they, where they will play out. But for whatever reason, I think probably because this happened in a, in a living government where there were many officials, State Department and others, the, the Fiona Hills and William Taylors of the world, we've had many people who we know they knew the White House didn't want to testify. And they said, no, I'm coming forward either to do their duty you know, you get a congressional subpoena, you're supposed to deliver the information. Or, as David says, because there's five degrees, 10 degrees, 15 degrees separation between their interests and those of, of Trump. And you see people wanting to think about their own futures. John Bolton would be a phenomenal example if it comes to pass. Um, Malcolm, uh, a, a lesser covered event, but strikes me as a huge one nevertheless, last week was with, with uh, Uncle Rudy, was the announcement he is apparently the subject of a counterintelligence investigation and not just a casual one. Is that, is that true? Is it just um, unsubstantiated rumor? And what does it imply about what the Bureau or, or thinks about what he may have done? Well, I find it fascinating that the Bureau of all organizations, the one that he had his fingers in the deepest, uh, considering that he was U.S. Attorney for the Southern District, and seemed to be very suc successful in using the Bureau as a source to attack Hillary Clinton for over a year. So now... I can just tell you, they, le they leak like a sieve. They leak like a sieve they, to him. Yeah. And uh, for... For the word to come out that there is a counterintelligence investigation against him means that there is something that is far more significant in, in and how can I put it, uh, ominous about his behaviors. And they don't take these words lightly. I mean, I, I come from the intelligence side. Counterintelligence means that we think you're working for the other team. Okay, and when they start a counterintelligence investigation, a lot of things happen. We saw this with Carter Page and yeah, George what's Papadopoulos. What's the legal predicate? The, the legal predicate? That they have suspicions that you are working or, or working directly for or are under the pay of a foreign government, either in terms of as an intelligence operative or someone who may in fact just be an idiot and they are... They, they, you don't realize that you're falling under their sway, but U.S. intelligence sees it happening. So we don't know a lot of the information that's out there. I can tell you right now, as somebody who's been involved in activities that went on to become national counterintelligence operations, there are systems, resources, and personnel that are not of our government that give us information. So we don't know if the government of Ukraine is literally dropping videos and audio recordings of Rudy Giuliani breaking the law. We don't know that. It could be a sister agency like, you know, Estonia or Latvia or some other place where he thought he was secure and got off the plane from Ukraine and used the phone and as a high value target 
a NATO ally collected on him. I mean, there's a lot of sources. So for them to even hint at that, I'll leave that to, to you well, guys. Hint, That's do, bad. Do you take it as established that, that the counterintelligence investigation exists? I don't take it as a fact until we actually see an indictment. Um, I, I was of the mind. I didn't think Rudy was going to get through last week without being arrested, yeah. to be quite honest. I mean, everything appeared to be, as you said, it wasn't a damn breaking. It was this giant avalanche, like the side of a mountain sloughing off of the things. But Rudy Giuliani was at the center of everything. And I've just written a book about all the dirty tricks teams of the Trump era from 2016 on. I didn't have Giuliani that deeply involved, which shows you that he was hard. He was trust Trump. And him crafted a Michael Cohen relationship. And they buried Rudy deep. And Rudy was the guy who is now the fixer. And I suspect he's going to go the Michael Cohen way. I think he's going to go to prison. I mean, it could well, it could well be. We certainly, they buried him deep in a way, but they made it very clear to people who could report it to the, the country that he was in charge. I, I, uh, your, your point about Ukraine, by the way, struck me. They're in a very interesting position here. We take them as just a sort of, or I, I, we're prone to take them as a generic small country, but we have, I think there are two things to point out. First, for them politically, it's a tricky calculation because uh, they know that Trump may not be president in 2020 and to be so much on Team Trump really threatens good relations with the U.S. going forward. And second, from the little we can tell, Zelensky actually seems to be a really stand-up, interesting guy interested in ferreting out corruption, changing the culture, being fully separate in a sort of moral democratic way from Russia. And that would also sh indicate other things. Can I make a uh, quick yeah. point on that? There are two Ukraines at play here. There's the pro-Moscow government that Paul Manafort was working for that appears to be the oligarchs who are funding and involved in this entire operation. Then there is the pro-Western Ukraine, which now supposedly Zelensky is part of, who are in war with Russia. So the reason we're seeing both right and left sides of Ukraine here is, and, and even more interestingly, it appears that, but, that Giuliani is engaged in getting Manafort off. Yeah, but, and yeah. I mean, everything swirls around all of Paul Manafort's dirty Ukrainian billionaires to make this rumor up that Hillary Clinton was actually going with the pro-West Ukraine government to throw the election in 2016. Yeah. So when you think of Ukraine, think of the two sides. Giuliani's on the dirty side, and then there's the Zelensky government, most pro-Western Ukrainians who don't want any part of this. I mean, right, the July 25th call is first the day the Mueller report drops, and, and the, the beginning of it is an effort by the president, avowed, to undo some of the findings of the Mueller report as they relate to Manafort. Okay, so we've heard, uh, let's close out our, our discussion of uh, Giuliani with, I wanted to ask Barb and Dave if they have additional thoughts. We've heard the name Cohen bandied about Manafort. Is Rudy Giuliani the next Manafort in the sense that no matter what happens, going to jail, you know, losing to pay, whatever, he will, he will stand solid and never, uh, never 
turn, or is he someone who really is a potential danger for, oh, and by the way, play for a potential pardon, or is he someone who is an actual danger to the White House? It's, it's raw speculation, and maybe you don't have thoughts, but do you? Well, I have a, a couple of thoughts on this. The first is, um, uh, I don't think Manafort has held silent only because of hope for a pardon. I think Manafort has held silent because of fear of some very ruthless players, much more ruthless than anybody inside the United States. Russian players. Russian players and Ukrainian players and who knows who else he was doing business with. Um, so so um, there, there are worse things than being alive in an American jail. Um, and, uh, uh, and I think he may be mindful of them. Rudy Giuliani doesn't have that consideration. Um, the second difference between Manafort and Giuliani is Manafort seems to have a really um, astute awareness of realities. Uh, Giuliani, not so much. Um, a, a lot of his comments say, I mean, that, that he would, when he was involved in fabricating these stories, he actually sort of believed them too. Um, and he seems kind of disconnected from reality in a way that Manafort is not. Finally, Manafort um, has always been a staffer. Uh, that's how that, that is throughout his career. He's been a political manager. He's been a political operative. Someone else has been on the stage. Giuliani was a principal. Uh, Giuliani was mayor of New York, and in the eyes of history, he was uh, nearly ran for Senate. Um, he was someone who thought about running for president. The idea that he's going to he say, "I'm going to I'm going to sacrifice myself for the big boss," I, I don't know that that's the way his mind really works. Um, when Giuliani emphasized his status as Trump's personal attorney, that was not an act of humility. That was a statement of privilege. Um, that I, you, you know, you can't ask me certain questions because I'm a per, I, I'm a personal attorney. That if I were had some other relationship, um, I would I would not be able to be immune for. Um, one more thing, and I want to pick up on the thing you and Malcolm were just saying about Ukraine. Um, it is true that uh, naturally Americans make themselves the center of the story. But this is a country fighting for its life, its territory invaded, part of its territory foreign occupied. Um, in the period while Donald Trump was withholding aid for his own purposes, in the month of August, 12 Ukrainian soldiers died. Uh, the month of September was the bloodiest month in years in the uh, 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 between Ukraine and Russia, with 50 Ukrainian soldiers killed or wounded. Um, there are real-world costs to this divided society. I, I've been there. I've had a chance to spend some time. It is, a, as Malcolm said, a deeply divided society with forces that want to be modern, forces that don't. Uh, but, you know, one thing, I'm going to quote my friend Ann Applebaum, who spent a lot of time in mm -hmm. Ukraine. And Ann said, I am so tired of hearing Americans refer to the corrupt nature of Ukrainian politics. You know who has corrupt politics and a lot less excuse for it? The United States has corrupt politics. And uh, this is a country that has been, you know, uh, stunted by famine and Soviet communism and post-Soviet dissension and invasion, and their political system is not a model. What's our excuse? Yeah. Let me just say, let me just put in a, a, a quick plug for someone I've never met and long admired. Ann Applebaum, when you, when you come to this part of the world, is tremendous. Thoughtful, knowledgeable, uh, brilliantly analytical. Okay, um, did you have any, any, any thoughts about Rudy? Uh, is, is he an actual risk to, to Trump? Uh, you know, is he a loose cannon or, or not? Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of talk about whether uh, President Trump would throw Rudy under the bus. I think Rudy will jump to throw President Trump under the bus if it suits his purposes. You know, I come from the world, the same world Rudy Giuliani comes from, that of a U.S. attorney, a federal prosecutor. It is the way we build cases uh, is to flip 
witnesses and to get them to testify against more egregious offenders. Giuliani knows that, and I think he would be only too willing to trade prison time in exchange for information about others, including President Trump. Okay. All right. Look, um, let's, so I want to move now to the, the more concrete um, discussion of the impeachment effort. And there's a lot of focus on what would be the main article of impeachment. We know that. We've talked about it. And I think at a minimum, the, this, this central um, chapter, an abuse of power, and a account on um, uh, the actual obstruction involving this very investigation. But there's obviously so much more, and there's a strategic call and maybe even a moral call. Part of this is being done for history about other aspects of um, the of what's happened the last couple of years. And I wanted to ask each of the, the panelists a question about that. Um, uh, so let's, let's start. Um, what, back to you. David, you know, you've written more eloquently than anyone about the sort of toxic effect, the fundamental derogation of American values of Trump's divisiveness. I mean, that's a real reason why he has been not just a poor president, but a, but a dangerous and deleterious one. So we hope that in some happier day, we'll study the, the Trump presidency as the kind of dying efflorescence of a certain brand of hateful politics and the Republican Party. Does that figure in the moral case for impeachment? Does it figure in the practical case for impeachment? Is that just sort of background to the specific concrete charges that, that the House may contemplate? Um, the House, I think, is now more or less a foregone conclusion. Um, so, although that's the drama and the story, that they'll pass it or what they'll say. Th th that, that the House will impeach, yeah. I think, is pretty much a foregone conclusion. I would guess there will be three articles of impeachment: um, one having to do with abuse of power, the, the use of official position to extract a benefit by withholding a, um, with, by withholding the aid. I think this, th there will be a second. Uh, I'm guessing a, an obstruction of justice charge uh, to serve as sort of a catch-all for further bad facts that come to light. So you can present those when they come before the Senate, because the Senate can in, the Senate can do what it wants, but it has to operate within the articles. You need a charging document, right? But then once you have the charging document, there's a lot of things you can read into it, and then, and then I think there will probably be a third count having to do with contempt and refusal to answer questions. That would be just my guess, um, and I think those things will pass quite expeditiously um, before. Uh, before Christmas, certainly, maybe even faster than that. Then the action moves to the Senate, and that's where um, the legal and the moral yield to the political. Um, what President Trump ha will have going for him in the Senate is um, uh, the, the Fox News uh, spirit of, of tribalism, and that's what we saw on display when those um, members, of the Republican members of the House caucus attacked the security facility underneath the um, Congressional Visitor Center. Um, he will also have an, an awareness among Republicans that he takes them down with him. I mean, it doesn't happen that you turn on a bad president and the public says, thank you for your service and rewards you. <laughs> um, as, as the Nixon impeachment of 1974 showed, you don't get rewarded for the turn. You get punished for the long association. And so um, the price of um, a removal or a near removal will be Republican losses in 2020, and they all know that. So those are the assets the president has. What he has against him are, one, being incredibly guilty. Um, uh, but more important than that is um, 
the wounds and insults that he's inflicted on members of the Senate. I mean, senators are not like House members. You cannot kick a senator and expect the senator to forget about it. Uh, the senator remembers, and the senator has a sense of what is owed to that person as a member of the Senate. Um, and so not only does Trump have to worry about the people like um, Mitt Romney, who does have a very strong moral core. Uh, he has to worry about people like Lisa Murkowski, the senator from Alaska, with a strong independent streak, um, who won election as an independent and doesn't owe the Republican Party much because it tried to take the nomination away from her. But he also has to worry about people like Ted Cruz, um, who are more or less political allies, come from pro-Trump states. But Trump insulted Ted Cruz in just about every way it's possible to insult a human being. And Ted and Cruz, his dad. And his dad. His and his wife. And him. And Ted Cruz is not, unlike Marco Rubio, is not one of nature's doormats. Um, that Ted Cruz is not somebody who's like, you know, who has forgotten those things. Um, and there are a number of other senators in that position who are saying, you know, so long as you look scary, we'll be scared. But the moment you don't, um, we have our own private agendas. He seems to really have a sense of that. You know, you have to at all times look aggressive and scary. Um, but you seem to have a follow-up, Barb, but I actually wanted to ask you, you know, I, we're looking at different kind of almost uh, auxiliary conduct, but that seemed, you know, really at the core of what when we think about Trump are, you know, so worrisome. And, and so the general assault on the rule of law, the complete indifference to legal norms, institutional norms, the sorts of things that the that Judge Howell earmarked last Friday, you know, this, the, the calling the um, basically saying this is this is your due from having having been so ridiculous in your legal positions. Does that figure in the mix here, or is that also sort of by the side and we're just doing, as prosecutors might, a keep it simple, stupid, focus on two or three chapters? I, I agree with David that I think that this contempt of uh, the judicial process of law is going to come home to roost. I am optimistic that eventually the law is going to catch up to President Trump. Uh, you know, he has vowed to fight all the subpoenas. Um, that is not a sound legal strategy. <laughs> that is, you know, you would be sanctioned for that in court. And I think we're starting to see that come home to roost. The judges, I mean, without exception, are ruling against him. Uh, this idea that a president not only can't be indicted, but can't even be investigated. He's losing all of these battles. I think his strategy has long been to just delay, delay, delay. And if he can slow walk these legal battles and appeal and get past the 2020 election, he will declare victory. But judges are moving quickly. We just saw an oral argument in the Second Circuit recently where his legal team made the absurd argument that he couldn't even be investigated for shooting someone on Fifth Avenue. Um, the judge was incredulous at that. So I, I don't think these—he's uh, going to win in the courts ultimately. And so, um, if the courts can't hold him accountable before November 2020, I agree with David that we're going to see account an article of impeachment relating to that abuse of process, abuse of the rule of law, and ultimately he will be held accountable in one way or another. All right. Um. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, the rule, the, the law grinds slowly, but it grinds fine. You have the sense that these judges have had to wait, 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 but now they're here. Okay. And well, and now Malcolm from, I mean, this is sort of each of our kind of parochial, um, concerns. I, I, I think in Barb and other lawyers and members of the Department of Justice have been incredibly a stunned and be appalled at his treatment of both the courts and the law and, of course, of 
the the people of the of the 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 you know that we worked with for years who we know to to have integrity uh, of whatever party. Um, you know so much about the kind of national security aspects of that have been. I think you've made clear kind of disastrous in his presidency. So let me. I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about your book uh, because it it get, you know it, it lays out a kind of concerted and successful, partially anyway, campaign by Russia to get its hooks into Trump and uh, the damage to national security interests that that has occasioned. So you know that and the Ukraine affair. How do they, if at all, figure in? to the case that the House should make for impeachment? Well, I take a pretty unified approach in The Plot to Betray America. If you know my other two books, The Plot to Hack America was, a, was written before the election and it was a predictive analysis of everything that we would come to learn in the Mueller report. Plot to be Destroy Democracy was about Putin's plan to fundamentally break our democracy by empowering conservative movements around the world including the one in the United States. But this book is different. It's about Team Trump and how the Russians clearly saw that their money and their culture and their, to be honest, in some circumstances, their women were easy marks, that American conservatives were very easy marks and saw... Why Russia conservatives? <laughs> you know, interesting fact... The KGB in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, some of their most successful f flips, people that they had actually turned, were all conservatives and loyalists. Aldrich Ames, you know, uh, you know, other CIA officers, because those people were not ideologically aligned with you. Uh, leftists, they would say in the KGB manuals, were untrustworthy because they knew you, and if they turned they would damage you horribly. So conservatives were only interested in money. Uh, so it was a KGB strategy to go after conservatives, and as they, uh, as they put in, uh, in, in one statement, who were self-centered, narcissistic, um, and were only concerned about money. Because you could Do deal with Do we know anyone them. like that? That is literally a quote from the KGB man manual on human intelligence. And so what I do is I go back to how Vladimir Putin started as a baby human intelligence officer and learned to manipulate people. And then, of course, the, the entire story starts with Russia, if you're listening, please release the 20,000 Hillary Clinton emails. All of this shows and, and everything that's happened ever since that Team Trump, every one of his followers, every one of his major supporters, right, including Rudy Giuliani, they are all part and parcel to Donald Trump's strategy to transform America into a completely different animal in which their crew, their team, could do anything they wanted. They were masters of the universe. I think that's why Giuliani has this attitude of, you can't touch me. Because he believes he and Donald Trump control the levers of power and they know how to operate them better than anybody and you will never get me. Which, as far as I'm concerned, I only, there's only one question I have for Giuliani. Does he go to Rikers or does he go to the jail that, you know, that the guy, you know, hung himself in? 
uh, the federal. The MCC. You know, he yeah. goes there, actually. He knows Rikers. The MCC. Okay, he knows Rikers. Yeah. So all of these, these people, I actually have an entire chapter called the Republican. It's about the schmoo, the animal from Little Abner, which was if you looked at it, it turned into whatever food you desired the most, right? And that the Republicans have transformed themselves into schmoos. And whatever Donald Trump desires, they transform into it. But for the most part, Team Trump has compromised almost every aspect of our national security. And they are embracing our enemies to do it because they see a giant pool of money as higher a, a source of loyalty than the Constitution. The Constitution, they think, is malleable. They're plaything. They can manipulate it as they want, and laws and rules don't apply to them. All right. Well, I, I want to, to close out our discussion, but with an interesting turnabout, asking everyone on the panel how they actually would advise the White House now to play what seems to be a pretty bad hand. But I, I have one quick follow-up. So think about that, panelists. But just a, a quick follow-up for David. What is the deal with Russia and North Korea and you could very easily imagine a, a, a Trump figure, maybe a, a George Wallace or whatever, who would have all these domestic impulses, but they wouldn't be connected to really seeming to, to want to bring us closer to these, you know, our, our, our natural uh, enemies and adversaries. What is it in Trump's psyche, politics, or whatever, because I don't think it's his base that l wants to, mm -hmm. you know, embrace Putin, that, that makes him so want to, uh, you know, kiss up to the, right. the worst people in the world. Right. Now, from a political point of view, it would have worked just as well if he'd done it right. the other way. Um, and uh, uh, it, that, that is hard, hard to see. I think there's a confluence of things. First, as, as Malcolm said, there was a background predisposition to Russia in certain parts of the American right um, because of the, the flow of money. Um, that There's just untraceable money, and the, the NR, National Rifle Association became an important conduit. Um, I think Donald Trump also had the experience of going to Russia and thinking, this is how I would like to live. Um, I would like to be rich the way the Russian elite are rich, and I would like to have the legal impunity that yeah. the Russian the, uh, rich have. Because in the United States, there's, you know, as Martha Stewart and many others can attest, uh, money can buy a lot, but there are things money cannot buy. Whereas in Russia, there's nothing that money cannot buy. And that, that is attractive to someone like Donald Trump. Um, the North Korean thing does seem kind of like a random walk. Uh, and I think if the Iranians had managed their personal diplomacy better, they might well have been the recipient of this, if they had flattered him more and manipulated him more. Um, I think Donald Trump also saw there wasn't a good solution to the North Korea problem. And so um, proclaiming any solution you could get as a success, that appealed to a lot of his branding instinct, which is, you know, you, you, um, you take a pretty dismal box of steaks and label them as the best steaks ever. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it, it has, uh, but it has been. I, I think the Russia thing is, is, as Malcolm said, it's about money, uh, money, money first, and the prospect of money. I don't think there's some big sexual secret. I think that those stories seem crazy. I think Donald Trump doesn't have any sense of shame there. He doesn't have a marriage he wants to protect. He doesn't. None of those things that might influence some other person would matter to him at all. He could just laugh the whole thing off as funny. Um, and I'm sure that would not be a political problem for him. But money in the past to the prospect of money in, in the future, I think, is a, a 
a big part of it. Um, but it does put him, this is a, it's also a point of vulnerability because it puts him at variance with his party. Most of the Republicans in the Senate would like a more friendly policy toward Ukraine and a more hostile policy toward Russia. Um, they are at ill at ease um, with the North Korea policy, because even if we do have to, in the end, suck it up and accept North Korea as a nuclear state, we don't have to like it. And he's made them yeah. like it in a way that they're probably pretty uncomfortable with. Okay, thanks. Um, I think a, a puzzle like for, for historians, uh, at, you know, at this point also. All right, so Barb, then Malcolm, then David, you're the... You're the uh, debuting to run the impeachment effort, God knows why, uh, for the White House. So, you know, uh, what, what's your sort of two-minute pitch for how this should go? What's their best way to play the hand uh, they've been dealt? You know, as a former uh, investigator, the best way to satisfy investigators that an investigation is not necessary is to show that you can police yourself. And so I think if the Trump administration can show that it is going to be forthcoming, it's going to be transparent, uh, that could be a way to get congressional investigators to back down. You begin by firing William Barr and appointing a, an attorney general that has public trust, someone who's neutral and perhaps even a Democrat, someone who is aligned with the other party, and say, we are going to open the window shades and we're going to investigate. We're going to prove to you that there was nothing untoward about what was going on in Ukraine. This was uh, ho political horse trading for the benefit of the United States, not President Trump himself. We will comply with all subpoenas, but they're not necessary because we're going to show our hand and be above board in everything we do. Great advice. You're not hired, right? They, uh, <laughs> no. but, yeah. um, what else you got? Well, yeah, they're just having to, to like actually um, uh, acquiesce. But yes, Malcolm. Well, my advice is very simple. And uh, I mean, first off, this should have happened a couple of years ago. I, I would just come to the president and I would make sure that it's a recorded. And I would say, it's time to surrender. You just, the, the gig is up. They know what you've done. They have the goods. There's no fighting this. The more rear guard actions you do, the deeper you're going to go. Just come out and confess everything and throw it upon the mercy of the nation. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give him any advice that would certainly violate the Constitution. And I think doing these, you know, Barb, no offense, but going and, you know, changing the attorney general and owning up to it and trying to reframe it, that's what they would, I think that's what Putin would advise him to do. Uh, you know, change the framework of the narrative to make a longer delay. And, you know, anyone with the slightest sense of honor, and if you know me, I've got a really deep sense of honor. And anyone who's still in that White House who isn't going to their boss and saying, screw you, you're all dirty, I'm not going to be part of this, that's the only advice here. Anyone that is not doing that in that White House is equally as guilty. And, you know, I'm sure he'll say, and I'm sure at the end of that. Great advice. I'm You're sure, not hired. I know, I know. And he'd be like, what's your name? <laughs> um, so while endorsing uh, both of what you have said, and especially what Malcolm has said about what 
you know, what I personally, David Frum, would do if I got a call to go visit the president. Let me approach this in a slightly different spirit, and that is in the same spirit with which I would play sometimes the German side when I played my son Axis and Allies and summer evenings on the board game. So without endorsing the cause, I, it's, a, it's a series of counters on the board, and let's take it in a value-free way yeah. and move the gray pieces around against the blue ones. Um, uh, there was a saying during Watergate, uh, the cover-up is worse than the crime. And the reply to that is, it depends what the crime is. Um, if grandma is dead upstairs, then cover-up is really your only way to go. Um, uh, so if, if we're just playing this as a board game, moral content, uh, that Trump's got this problem, that he, he's really guilty. And unlike Richard Nixon whose best defense during Watergate was, yes, I'm guilty, but frankly, most of the presidents since the Cold War have done things that are not quite as bad as this, yeah. but they're similar. I am not the first president to have summoned, uh, to have asked for IRS tax returns. Franklin Delano Roosevelt did that. I am not the first president to have wiretapped his political opponents. Lyndon Johnson and Franklin Delano Roosevelt did that. I, mean, I, I did more. I went further. I didn't use established organizations. I had my own plumbers because the FBI wouldn't help me. So it's worse, but it's not qualitatively different. In Trump's case, we're dealing with offenses that have never been seen before in the history of the United States. So, um, and he is guilty of all of them. There's no factual dispute. He did extort Ukraine using American aid to try to influence an election. Um, so there is no safety. Um, and uh, more sunlight will cast a harsher light. He will only look worse. Um, and surrendering, Congress will not cut him a deal. I mean, that, that um, people used to make a joke, you can keep the plane if you resign now. Um, but at this point, I don't think that's going to happen. So his strategy um, ha has to be to play for time. Slow the House down, slow the Senate down, and see if you can push this to the point where it's now June or July of 2020. Before, and the Senate has not voted yet, at which point you can argue, for goodness sakes, let's adjourn this to November. You know, that we're, it's only now four months. Why are we going through these four, uh, proceedings? If you want to beat me at the ballot box, beat me at the ballot box. But try to just try to push it. He only needs to do that for about six months to be able to make the argument, this is for the people to decide. So that's, that's the, the survivable strategy when you're and this guilty. And the key to that is Mitch McConnell? The key to that is, well, no, you have to play for time at every moment. So the key to that is each phase. So at the House Judiciary Committee, um, at, on the House floor. Um, then Mitch McConnell. But you need to, yeah, you, you don't want it to speed through the House. Because if it speeds through the House, it's, it's at the Senate in January. You want to slow it down in the House, if you can, and then make, so to get it into the new, not until the new year that it reaches the Senate, and then have various kinds of procedural delays in the Senate, so the Senate doesn't even begin hearings until the spring, and then it's June and July, and then you can say, well, there's an election coming. Let's not yeah. do this now. I mean, I actually think I was, I, this was jocularly because I think, because, because um, Trump's, instincts of never surrender, always redouble and, and assail your critics is just so strong. But I actually think they're at, if you're just thinking value-free strategy, the notion of showing your, you know, you have to be thinking about 2020 and trying to cast it as a referendum. The notion of showing you're really going to run things differently. The notion of doing some kind of genuine apology. The notion of trying to let out some of the pressure now all should, it seems to me, would be aspects of a of a sound uh, policy. I mean, they really do have to do something. And one of the interesting, interesting, challenging issues is nobody seems to be in charge there. It, it looks as if the head of the war room, which doesn't exist, there's no war room, is Donald Trump. And that, he, that would be the worst case to have the president in any situation when it's Donald Trump. You know, it's, it's, it's all the, the more worrisome, just for them, again, tactically. 
Okay, um, it's, uh, it's time for the, our final Talking Feds uh, segment, Five Words or Fewer, where, those, as you know, we take a question from a listener, and each of the Feds has to answer in five words or fewer. Our question today comes from Jessica Trostell, who asks, if the Senate does not vote to remove the president from office, foregone conclusion, there's an indictment, no removal, are there any direct consequences, and let me just embellish, I think she means sort of political, historical consequences from the impeachment for, by the House? So five words or fewer. Meth, oh, you, you want to go second, don't yeah, you? Yeah, give me a second. Yeah. Any, anyone ready? Can we okay. hear the question again? Is okay. That... Assume that there's an impeachment but no removal. Does the whole thing, does the whole opera saga matter? Are there real consequences politically, morally, historically for, uh, you know, the, the country from there having been an impeachment but no removal? Well, and I'll, I'll keep embellishing. There's a thought. I mean, I, I don't think President Clinton was happy about this, and it will be in his um, the first paragraph of his obituary. Nevertheless, there's a thought that not only was the impeachment of Clinton not an, a, an effective move, it was actually counterproductive. He ended up more popular, etc. It's as if not much happened. There's a thought that, you know, but, uh, you know, I think the impeachment of Johnson surely did matter. And the and of course, the Nixon yeah. effort did. What what's it mean for the country and history if there's an impeachment, but no removal? Oh, your five words are ready. Go. I got my five words. All right. You know, I never leave you happy smiling. So you will not like this within the context that you just put it. My five words are America may see civil war. I, I wow. don't. You should go last. Yeah, I know. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, Barb. The beast will be unleashed. Oops. Okay, more. I just said that. <laughs> uh, di- division, disgrace, defeat. And I think you mean that as a, because uh, I'm, I'm also uh, uh, trending in that direction. It'll, say, it'll split his party. Yep. Um, yep. It, he will be disgraced and he will be defeated. And just to use the Clinton analogy, why didn't Al Gore win election in 2000? He really should have. Um, conditions were strong in the country. Um, uh, uh, people really did want a, a third Clinton term. I, mean, in the Bush, I served in the Bush administration. And consciously or not, we were, try, we were working before 9-11 on the assumption what America wanted was more Clinton, but with his act cleaned up. Um, or more Clinton, like the more of the more conservative side of Clinton. And yeah. Bush was re- governed very much as Clinton's heir and probably more than Al Gore would have done. Um, but Clinton ended up, the impeachment process split Clinton's party. And that's one of the reasons that Gore was in trouble. He, he um, chose uh, Joseph Lieberman, the most stringent Clinton critic on the d- Democratic side yeah. as his running mate, alienating pro-Clinton yeah. people. Um, and that uh, that weakened Gore, and that's why Bush was able to uh, to tip him in an election where the incumbent party should have easily won. All right, um, and I'll say yes. Permanent moral historical rebuke. All right, thank you very much to Malcolm, David, and Barb. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to Talking Feds on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. 
And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod uh, uh, or talking, TalkingFeds.com where we have full episode transcripts. Submit your questions, please. We are always looking for more to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's about five words or fewer or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thank you so much to the hardworking staff at Politicon. And thanks, listeners, for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Thanks, everyone.